0: And hello,
1: this is Neil, and this is Thursday, September 22nd, 2016. We have a 45-minute show tonight, and tonight we have Charles Marshall returning as our guest at my request to talk about settlement options in civil litigation with specific focus on foreclosures. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies Blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call. 202-838-6345, which is our new main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you and our other work, please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. We are talking about tonight about integrating the fighting and litigation and the settlement of those cases by agreement many judges have expressed to me both while they were on the bench and off bench that modifications and settlements seem random to them with no rhyme or reason why one person gets a modification or a settlement while another is pushed to foreclosure sale in the old days banks who had their own money at risk would do anything to work out the the loan rather than go through with a foreclosure unless it was obvious that the borrower could no longer afford a work out even in Chapter 11 in bankruptcy. The situation is different now, as we will discuss. Charles Marshall is an attorney with offices in... San Diego County, and satellite offices in uh, the L.A. area, San Jose, and Lake Tahoe. Uh, He has clients throughout California and practices in all four federal California districts and appeals pending uh, uh, in the uh, Ninth Circuit and the state appellate districts, and uh, I just heard that he made an appearance appearance in the California Supreme Court, which maybe we'll hear about later. Uh, he handles all aspects of foreclosure-related cases, including uh, California plaintiffs' foreclosure lawsuits, defense lawsuits against homeowners from the usual suspects like Chase, Wells Fargo, City uh, City Mortgage, etc. Appeals and select cases in bankruptcy and unlawful detainer matters. He can be reached at 619-807-2628. So tonight's show is going to be mostly devoted to the issue of settlement modification, etc. And the four areas that we're going to be covering are settlement value, In other words, what are the elements that add up to a potential settlement and how they can be valued, the timing of settlement discussions, the use of demand letters and other posturing uh, activities, and when to close, when to escalate, when to walk away. Charles Marshall, welcome back. Hey, Neil. It's great to be on your show again. And I know we're still looking for a guest post from you on the blog for some of the issues that we uh, discussed the last time you were on. Uh, Still waiting for that, just a little nudge. That Uh, will happen. (laughs) Well, Charles, I've been consistently dealing with the same problem in mediation in virtually every case, and it doesn't matter what state it's in. uh, Where I've been the attorney, of course, it's in Florida. My experience is that despite the rules of mediation, despite the court rules on mediation, despite the court's order on mediation, the foreclosing party still does not show up or send someone with authority to negotiate what i get are disembodied voices over the telephone telling us that we can submit an application for modification and that they will deliver the package for modification at the mediation or send it afterwards and as far as they're concerned that's the end of mediation if i ask them what the terms might be they have no idea if they ask them if they have authority to negotiate those terms, they don't. And I've been filing motions for sanctions and screaming and yelling that they have violated the court order and all the rules by not sending someone with full settlement authority. I actually had one case where my client was ready to pay in cash the amount of money that they had asked for in the modification offer, which was considerably above market value for the uh, House, and their response was, we reject your counteroffer, and they declared an impasse. And, of course, the question in my mind is, why are we negotiating with a party whom we know has no legal authority over the loan? So what's your take on that, first of all? Um, yeah, my take on that is
2: settlement value in these foreclosure cases, and this would be true whether we're talking about the typical California case where the borrower was on the plaintiff's side or Florida, New York, Massachusetts, where the borrower was on the defendant's side. Settlement value in legal cases and again, this includes foreclosure cases, it is 100% a function of the following. And that following, and of course there, there are going to be some kind of provisos and clarifications to what I'm going to say, but that, that fundamental uh, framework for all settlement discussions is this. What will the fact finder in the lawsuit Decide alternate, and of course, you know there's going to be a percent kind of assessment you know whether it's somewhat general or much more specific about the likelihood of prevailing a trial, and by the way, even that calculus there's a lot that relates to foreclosure law that explains the the kind of obtuseness that you're describing, Neil um, the short of it is. If you've got a fact finder, whether it's a judge or a jury, who's highly likely to side with either party based on the facts and law, and it's kind of a given that they're gonna go a certain way, and I'm gonna segue briefly, let's talk about personal injury law real quickly, because whether it's California, Florida, New York, Illinois, personal injury law is extremely predictable. I mean, there are certain freak injuries that create conundrums for everyone, including those involved in settlement. But the vast majority of injuries are very much subject to mathematical analysis, statistical analysis, uh, predictive analyses of various kinds. And what that all means in the real world is you you can almost predict a dollar amount that you're going to get for a given injury, whether it's in California or anywhere else. Not so in foreclosure law. Foreclosure law is much more open-ended, And remember, my criterion, which is absolutely the way that I think all legal analysis should be framed, whether it's foreclosure law or any other type of law, what will a fact finder do? Uh, The reason I frame it that way is simple. Who's ever subject to the settlement, they have to be uh, cognizant of what a, a judge or a jury is likely to do. Look, if a judge or a jury it's a total open question what's going to happen, then there's going to be a lot of uncertainty and variety in settlement results. And that's exactly what you see in foreclosure law. If, on the other hand, you can literally mathematically predict what a settlement would look like and how likely it – I'm sorry, what a, what a judgment will look like and how likely it is to go down, like, again, in the vast majority of personal injury cases, in that scenario, you can predict monetary settlement in a, in a mathematical way. So on our side, whether you're in a plaintiff's case in California or you're a defendant borrower in Texas, uh, you know, Florida, New York, Massachusetts, whatever your situation is, you know that you don't know what settlement value really looks like specifically, because there's so much variety in how these cases these foreclosure cases shake out. So
1: yeah, and that, very, that creates
2: the scenario you're talking about, Neil. I mean, you have a lot of variety in how these settlements shake out. You also have a lot of grandstanding and game playing and basically obstructionist behavior on the part of the institutional servicers and lenders, those in charge of the negotiating on the other side, because they know they can get away with it. They can get away with it because they're not overly concerned with what will happen at trial. I mean, the reality is they should be more concerned, but we have to continue to push our game ahead. Again, whether we're all on defense through much of the country or offense in California, we have to continue to push our game ahead to make the other side more concerned about what's going to happen in settlement.
1: Right. That's that's part of why I do this show, is to get people on board and realizing that they can Uh, protect themselves. They can defend their homes, and uh, while the predictability is always in question, uh, partially because it'll vary from judge to judge uh, as to how they apply the law or if they apply the law, and sometimes it'll vary with the same judge. Um, And the some of that results from not presenting the case properly, but an awful lot of it has to do with the fundamental assumption on the part of most judges. Uh, I think they're getting less and less now in number, uh, particularly after this latest thing with Wells Fargo. Uh, but they still start with that myth of the free house and how terrible that would be if a borrower got one uh, without any consideration to what it means to take that house and give it to a financial institution that has no right to to have it. Uh, You
2: know, absolutely. I mean, just to give you a window in terms of California – on how salient and real-time, real-world the freehouse meme still is. Here we are, 2016, heading toward the end of the year. You know, I'm in front of the first appellate district uh, judge panel, three judges yesterday, and they always hold their hearings in the California Supreme Court, and what goes down, exactly what you're saying. And I see this just repeatedly. I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, fortunately, but here you've got three judges, and one judge, the top of his mind is free house, your client hasn't been making payments, why are they here? Why are they gaming the system? I mean, this is still front and center in the minds of a lot of people adjudicating these matters, and you know, that doesn't mean that our side, you know, gets small and accommodating. That means our side has to get smarter. Our side continually has to maneuver around these types of situations. The way I handled it in the hearing yesterday is I maneuvered the discussion around eventually to the Sierra the U.S. bank decision. And, yes, I will be doing a blog item on that. And, <laughs> you know, that's that's a fundamental decision out there. And that case, I convinced the panel uh, in court yesterday to allow me to uh, present what's called a, uh, a letter brief. It's, it's very typical in appellate practice, at least in California. I know it's used elsewhere, but it's used especially in California, whereby when there, there have been case law developments and other developments in the law, that you could reference those in a short brief to the appellate panel, and so the case is basically on hold now, which is a good sign, and I'm going to be able to present in two weeks a written brief about the Sierra versus U.S. Bank. You know, again, it's not U.S. Bank as U.S. Bank. It's National Association, and then it's followed by, you know, the usual alphabet soup of some trust, uh, you know, with 17 different words attached to it. Um, but, yeah, that's that case, and, you know, I've got the opportunity to properly present it to the uh, first appellate district in San Francisco here in California, and I, I will do just that. And, yeah, you know, speaking of settlement value, this is an opportunity, and this, these are windows of opportunity that happen in, in, in settlement situations. I mean, I'm going to approach the other side about settlement now. I have approached them before several times the case that's been going on now, including the appeal, for several years. And has my client been making payments during that time? No. Is my client a deadbeat? No. They want to know who the proper party to pay is. They haven't gotten any, you know, resolution on that. And more importantly, and I brought this up to the panel yesterday, uh, you know, they want to focus on deadbeat some of these judges, but I bring the discussion back as I did yesterday. Look, my client, and it's true, uh, it's, it's a husband and wife who are my clients. They have done and they do what many people in their situations have done. They've approached Bank of America, by the way, as the servicer and the longtime defendant in this case. They've approached them multiple times, and we're talking about over a period of many years, and they've done you know, everything upside down to try to get this loan worked out. And it's, it goes back to what you're saying, Neil. I mean, you have so much bad faith and you, you have so much, you know, kind of switching positions and playing keep away on the other side that it becomes very difficult to deal with. You know, on the other hand, looking at this in sort of a more big picture way, if this is the scene when we fight and we push, you know, imagine what it's like if you don't do anything. And that is the backdrop, ultimately, of what this show is about and what this whole foreclosure practice area is about. Uh, Yeah, I mean... Know that if you do nothing, you're going to get totally steamrolled. You know, no, this is not personal injury law. You're not guaranteed anything in this arena. On the other hand, if you do nothing, you will get, you know, shafted. And, uh, you know, our goal is to just limit how much you get hurt, but to switch the framework around so that you can actually get really good settlements. And that's, yeah, that's what our show is about today.
1: And I I think my analysis of the modifications that my clients have entered into and hundreds of other modifications is that what the servicer or the alleged servicer is actually doing is they're completing the theft from the investors because everything is payable under the modification agreement to the servicer and there is no reference to the identity of the creditor. So there you have a supposedly legal document that says you don't know Quicken Loans anymore who was uh, the originator on your loan. Now you're going to pay Aqua or SPS or Bayview or Shellpoint or whoever. And my uh, impression in, in analyzing the modification agreement is there's no question in my mind that if the investors tried to make a claim for the money after that modification was entered into, the servicer would say, This is our money. And your contract, Mr. Investor, is with the trust. And when the investor says, But there's nothing in the trust, the servicer is going to say, That's not my problem. And so what we're dealing with here is not only the myth of the free house for the borrower, but the myth that somehow it's a good thing if some financial institution without any right to do so gets the house, even though it's not owed any money, even though it had nothing to do with the loan, even though it submitted fraudulent forged paperwork, that's okay as long as it's the homeowner who takes the beating. And what my take is, is that it's simply, it's of course unfair and wrong and all that, but it makes no sense to think that 20 million homeowners woke up one morning and said let's game the system. It makes a lot more sense to say that those homeowners didn't know anything about the system. It makes a lot more sense to say that the people who are gaming the system are the ones who created the system. And when you look at the recent Wells Fargo scandal where they ordered their employees to create eight accounts for each depositor on the commercial banking side and you realize that they were charging fees and they were opening these accounts without the knowledge or consent of the depositors, Wells Fargo was committing fraud and yet and there are articles in today's New York Times and other periodicals that this is just part of the fraud the systemic fraud that Wells Fargo has created along with many other banks in the uh mortgage crisis and the foreclosure mess so My feeling about the settlement issue is that we're really not going to get a level playing field for settlement of these cases until the judicial branch of government is willing to give up the assumption that the homeowner is a deadbeat for challenging a fraudulent foreclosure. And I think we're getting closer to that. You see a lot more decisions, and I've gotten a couple of them uh, uh, that really frame out the, the, the fact that the representations made at trial were just plain false. But we're not there yet, which means that we need a lot more help and instruction and guidance on how to get these cases settled. So, you just brought up the fact that you are about to embark on more settlement discussions in that case. What are the factors for you in determining the timing of settlement discussions well one of the one of the factors is
2: more uncertainty rather than less, and again, you know, I start with the framework that Settlement value is driven by what will a fact finder do at trial, but, of course, these cases rarely go to trial, and one of the reasons for that, you and I have discussed this before and a lot of people understand this, one of the reasons for that is the servicers are absolutely, you know, and the nominal uh, note holders who don't really hold the note, like New York Bank Mellon in many cases, or Deutsche Bank, they will do anything to keep from going to trial because they don't want a negative result to be on their record. They don't want a negative result creating precedential value in California, Florida, or anywhere else. Um, So, you know, with that being said, one factor of settlement that I think really needs to be taken into account is a motivated party. And you see this in, in, in anything from real estate to any other. Look, th- this all is subject to se- essentially markets of value. And, you know, the settlements here are subject to economic principles just as everything else is subject to economic principles. So, you know, you may be in a neighborhood where you're looking at the house and, you know, the overall market value of the house, the houses that you're looking at is 300000 you could have one seller who's gonna who's gonna let a house go for 220. Why? Because they need to get out of town. They're in the middle of a divorce. They've got some other dramatic thing happening in their lives, and they're extremely motivated to sell. And you could have another seller who's sitting on you know uh, a demand of 400,000, even though the market values are three in the surrounding area, because they're not motivated to sell. So. You see that in settlement all the time, and it's something that I I try to use uh, to my client's advantage as much as I possibly can, and it's something borrowers should look out for. There are going to be places where you've got a motivated party on the other side. You know, sometimes a property is going to go to sale. It's already been recently sold, and Mm -hmm. the, the seller, meaning the servicer or the foreclosing trust wants to do a quick turnaround if they already have a deal in the works, well, then you have a motivated, motivated seller in that case. That often creates really good settlement value. In that case, it's post-foreclosure for, for you know, post-foreclosure borrowers to get a really good cash deal. Uh, when you're looking at this from a pre-auction scenario, this kind of opportunity that I'm, I'm having right now is a, is a really good window. It doesn't mean I'm going to get cooperation from the other side, but I've seen it time and again. The other side is much more resistant to change and uncertainty than we are. We see it all the time. They don't. They get predictable results in a lot of cases without a lot of work. Well, they're really going to have to work on getting this letter brief out. They're going to have to put a lot of analysis and time into it and they don't know what the judges are going to come back with. And, and following from your point earlier, Neil, you know, I'm only dealing with one of three judges now who's talking about the free house. I mean, that is progress. It's it's irritating, <laughs> but it's still progress. And, yeah. you know, I yeah. don't even think it's one of three judges anymore who talk about the free house. But this particular judge is focused on that. I think it's more like maybe one in five now in California. And, you know, that's a big uh, development for our side. It's Of course it's irritating, but, you know, we are making progress. We are changing the narrative, and, you know, everything is step-by-step. Step. So, yeah, you have to look for opportunities for settlement. I have one now. I'm going to exploit it. You know, that's one of the issues on these, these matters is timing. Um, you know, when you go into a case, either before you file a lawsuit or just after, a lot of times you're not going to be able to get a, a good settlement. Uh, the other side is still thinking that, you know, your case may or may not move forward because especially in California where we have the plaintiff borrowers, you know, it's it's certainly the case now that a lot fewer of these cases get dismissed, but some of them still get dismissed on motions to dismiss at the federal level at the state. So to the extent that the servicers and the nominal trust holders think that they can dismiss and kill the case, they're much less likely to, to, to enter meaningful settlement discussions. And then once you get past a mere motion to dismiss, what I see a lot of now is then you get motions for summary judgment, you get harassing discovery. It's like anything else in life you have to weather those storms, move forward, then you can get some real meaningful settlement discussions, because once the case legally is going to trial, especially if you beat back a motion for summary judgment, then the other side, how, this is the other thing about settlement discussions that people need to keep in mind. However obtuse and double-dealing and, 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 and in bad faith the other side is operated in throughout the time that you've been you know, trying to move your case forward, whether you're in pro per pro-se, or you have an attorney, however obnoxious the other side has been, it's important to keep in mind that there could be a change, you know, even within a day or two on settlement uh, posture, on willingness to settle, willingness to enter a settlement framework once your case is going to trial, once your case is, is fully moving forward. So that's one of the important dynamics, you know, involved with this is timing.
1: One of the things that I started to do just recently is when I went to mediation, I had uh, a prepared document that uh, uh, consisted of the uh, homeowner's uh, offer or suggestion for settlement. And... Using the mediator, I I used that to pick away at whether or not they had actual authority as ordered by the court and as required by our court rules here in Florida. And they have to have full settlement authority, and the judge frequently says out loud uh, when he orders the mediation, this has to be somebody that doesn't need to make a phone call. So I use – I'm starting to use those documents. I wouldn't call it a demand letter, but um, to establish uh, footprints under which I could pursue a motion for sanctions. And I'm finding more judges that are uh, uh, tolerating those motions for sanctions – Um, uh, more than the issue of who wins and who loses the lawsuit. And the motion for sanctions could be quite stiff, especially like in the case that I had where we were sent to mediation three times. Um, Are you using demand letters or any kind of suggestions uh, on behalf of the uh, homeowner? to settle the case?
2: Yeah, I've been using demand letters uh, for years for various purposes. Um, Before I address that, I I did want to tell you about one case that I recently had, and it relates directly to what you were just talking about. Riverside County in California, it's, it's inland. It tends to be more conservative. It tends to be more traditional. And the courts there can be very much sticklers about following various rules. Well, I have, you know an appellate case there uh, that was recently settled for really substantial money. And the reason that happened and I'm not saying this is the only reason, but it's it's exactly feeding into what I was also talking about earlier, when I was talking about a motivated party who really wants to settle. I've never seen this happen anywhere in California when it comes to to, uh, alternative dispute resolution ADR. And it was, you know, the ADR was set around a potential mediation framework. But the bottom line is the appellate court was prepared to issue essentially a subpoena to Citibank, who was the servicer in question, Citibank was tasked with having one of their board of directors from New York City actually come to this hearing, And that, those are Riverside local rules for these types of appellate matters. Not only must you have settlement authority, and you can't just represent that in some cursory email, and you can't be you know, sort of glib or, or uh, indirect about it, you have to actually have essentially a written arrangement in place whereby you assure the appellate court that at this ADR hearing, you will have one of your board of directors. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. And it created a multiple – it created a – it pumped up settlement value like five to seven times. Because they wanted to do anything to keep from uh, not, not just having this person appear, of course, there are expenses associated with that, but it it would have created so much credibility on our side that they were extremely motivated to do a deal, and they did. You know, going back to the demand letters, uh, the way I use those is, you know, I use them before lawsuits. They're a good way of framing. You know, showing that you've done predicate things prior to filing to give the other side real notice, meaningful notice, about demands and requirements that, if not met, will result in an actual filed lawsuit. Uh, I use them, and in many cases, as a sort of uh, preface to, you know, various legal motions that are going to be filed. And they can be very useful, you know, in high-pressure, quick-time situations, like with sale dates pending, unlawful detainer cases, you know, where there's a judgment potentially on the horizon where there's going to be a trial and then the homeowner could be evicted. Um, It's a very good way of getting quick attention from the other side. And, you know, you will get obtuse responses going back to what Neil was discussing before but it's like anything else. It's it's a, it's a percentage, you know, game. And when you send these out, uh, particularly if you both fax and email them, you can usually follow up either the same day or within 24 hours to get some kind of a response and often a meaningful response. It, you know, you're not going to get your actual demand met in most cases, but you are going to not just send a message, but it sets up meaningful settlement posture because all settlement exists within a framework it's it's critical that borrowers and, and attorneys and everybody else who's creating these settlement opportunities you have to create a framework for settlement and that means taking into account of the taking into account the relevant law and the relevant facts of your case and you can't just blow smoke you know everything that's done needs to be based on the facts and laws they intersect in the specific case. What would a fact finder do if it goes to trial? And do you have a motivated party on the other side? If they have a special need to, to avoid something, you know, or get something, then you can take advantage of that.
1: So, lastly, we move on to the category of you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. When do you close? When do you escalate? When do you walk away from a settlement? Well, you know, closing is one of the
2: most difficult uh, areas in settlement discussions to assess because, look, everybody always wants to get a better, better deal. That's a given. And it can be hard to assess whether the deal you're getting is really the best deal that can be had. But one thing is absolutely for sure. In foreclosure, uncertainty is usually our friend. Because remember, settlement value, it's a function of what a fact finder will do at trial. It's a function of how much does the law and the facts of your case support your position. And since we don't have full clarity and don't have a full alignment of law in the typical foreclosure case, that uncertainty makes the other side more resistant to settlement. But the more uncertain things become for the other side, because they're used to doing things in a certain way and they're used to getting certain results. They're used to killing cases, you know, halfway through early on, etc. So we have to be determined to push for settlement no matter what. I mean, you you have to pick your times. You have to, to be strategic about it. But as far as closing, I think one of the, the emphasis, you know, that I have in my own practice is sometimes you take a deal that's not ideal uh, because, you know, you, you have a window of opportunity. And even if a judge has been favorable to a case at the demure motion to dismiss case, you know, at the at the motion or – motion to dismiss or demure uh, stage of the case, those cases can end up being dismissed on a summary judgment motion. And then settlement value either evaporates or gets very small. So, you know, there are going to be windows of opportunity. There are going to be ebbs and flows in these cases. And, you know, it's certainly the job of attorneys to wire themselves into the best settlement opportunity but for those who are in pro-per or pro-se, you know, they themselves have to make some, some smart calculated assessments about where their cases are. And whether you're the bar or the attorney, you cannot over-focus on, oh, but I've been, you know, a victim of, of so much uh, wrong conduct on the other side. And, you know, so much has is, is gone uh, awry in my life because of this you're not going to get compensated for all of that. In some cases, you, you may only get compensated for a bit of that, and that can't be the standard you use to judge whether to take a deal or not. The standard you use whether to take a deal or not is can you hammer the other side if they don't agree to the settlement terms as they are? Because if you can't hammer the other side, whether it's in, in, in trial or otherwise, or if they're not overly motivated to get out of the case now, then the borrower needs to trim their expectations and their demands. Yes, you take something less in those cases, but that's absolutely better than taking nothing or risking too much by, you know, letting the case move forward when it's an otherwise marginal case. Even if you get a get a good ju- judge who gives you one good ruling, you could be knocked out on the next round. So these kinds of things have to be taken into account there. You know, when to escalate, again, is, is driven by uh the same kinds of timing issues i mean i'm escalating now on settlement even though i haven't made progress in this particular case the first appellate district case i was talking about earlier i'm escalating on that case now because i know the other side is worried about uncertainty why are they worried about it because they haven't seen this type of thing before they haven't seen an attorney who convinced an appellate panel to let a letter brief be written on a specific case now it's happening to them they don't want to deal with that uncertainty. It doesn't mean I'm going to get a deal done, but I am going to use the opportunity to try to get a deal done. And
1: you know, uh, one of the one of the yeah, things no, they, that that I found helpful, not totally conclusive, but helpful nonetheless, was letters written by the homeowner to the state's attorney general or the. CFPB who is by the way the one who exposed Wells Fargo and the latest scandal and it's not that they actually do anything but they do send the the complaint to the uh, uh, the bank the servicer uh, the trustee or whoever and ask them for a response and I found that following that um uh, uh several cases got settled on better terms than i would have ordinarily expected so that's another way of escalating that i'll put out there well charles marshall once again and uh i thank you for your uh insights on behalf of everybody who listens to this show and everybody who reads the blog charles marshall can be reached at Charles at Marshalllawca dot com and uh his uh website at uh dot com uh, uh slash home. And Oh
2: Neil I have got another uh, website that I'm using. It's uh I'll just give you the email it's c Marshall at Marshall
1: Estate dot com. Oh, sorry, I confused the two. Yeah, all good. right. All right. Well, thank you very much, and I'll see you all next week.
0: Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to the Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.